Hello and welcome to the January edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close-Up, the podcast in which we discuss the future happenings at the Metro Cinema in Edmonton, Alberta, and if possible how that relates to cinema in a broader context. Throughout the show you'll be hearing a cacophony of wonderful music from Soft Ions, Leonard J. Poole, Matthew Belton of Mangled Tapes and a variety of guises, Pigeon Breeders, Boosh, and whoever else I can find. And we are now, of course, a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. My name is Owen, I am the projectionist at Metro Cinema, as well as the co-host of monthly movie trivia at the tavern on white joining me today is talisha hello talisha hi tell us about yourself well i'm a virgo i like <laughs> long walks on the beach <laughs> i i don't no that's good you know i hate walks on the beach yeah, yeah so i'm the communications specialist and uh, house manager at metro excellent and also hey i'm heather heather's title has changed now though that's true i am now the president of the you Metro Board just, of Directors. Just leave it at just that. Just the president. I'm the president. So we're going to start off uh, at the beginning of January, but uh, we've got a couple of films that are still lingering over from December, uh, one of which is Parasite. I have not yet seen it, but I'm getting more and more excited about seeing it. We are also still showing The Lighthouse on the first. Everyone should come see that. It's brilliant. Let's start off with the, the first sort of new thing we've got is uh, we're going, uh, it's a kind of retrospective. It's a decade of films. And we're starting off with Moonlight. I actually did have as, as one of my, my favorite films of the last decade. I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what did you all make of it? Um, I think it's just kind of one of my favorite films in general. Of all time. It's fantastic. I was amazed because we showed it a lot when we, when we screened it. We, had, uh, we were kind of tied to showing it about sort of 20 or 30 times, I think. Yeah. Um, and for a film that we showed so many times, I didn't get bored of it at all. And that's very rare that that happens. Yeah, it was definitely one of my favorite movies of the last decade. I was also just thinking about kind of looking ahead to the future and programming and uh, and like Valentine's Day movies. <laughs> I was like thinking about kind of unconventional, like, you know, it's it's a romance film is oh, what yeah, it is. It is yeah. And uh, it doesn't, you don't think it's going there necessarily in the beginning of the film, but I'm kind of hard pressed to think of a movie that is... It just kind uh, of as romantic. As it's that, uh, it's incredibly delicate and and deft the way it kind of deals with the complexities of relationships. That is interesting. We should be showing films like that on uh, on Valentine's Day. A nice one that goes kind of uh, in tandem with that is uh, Sean Baker's latest as well, which is another one we picked we picked out, and that's going to be on the fourth. Is the Florida Project, uh, who made uh, he, Sean Baker made Tangerine as well, mm-hmm. and. Uh, if I had to pick one of the last decade of his, I don't know why I'm forcing myself to pick one. Yeah. I mean, I just think of the last decade, he's a great emerging filmmaker. Um, but uh, I probably would take Tangerine, but The Florida Project, it, it's a tough call because it was an absolutely fantastic film. I can't, what was the name of the uh, the young girl in it? Brooklyn, yeah. Brooklyn Prince. Yeah. Um, she was absolutely captivating. And I find it it's very rare that I can watch a film and uh, I'm truly bewildered by the performance of a child yeah she's just moonlight was a similar actually the kids in moonlight were yeah. amazing yeah if the florida project was also definitely one of my favorite films of the best of the last decade she's just a un, completely unforgettable presence mm-hmm. and the actress who played her mother as well the two of them yeah but i i think too just the way the film captures this very it really feels like you are almost a voyeur watching people in very off-the-cuff moments and particularly considering the film was shot on 35 millimeter film Mm -hmm. like it seems like they just let it roll forever and ever and ever and ever and let you know these kind of magical moments between the kids emerge so um, I I know that's not actually possibly how they made it so I'm just kind of baffled by how it is so good one thing I really liked about that was the way that they did the shots so when it was the kids they were always at the same like eye level yeah kids rather yeah. than like looking down on them or stuff it was always like very much at their level how they were yeah looking up everything. at willem yeah. defoe looking up at the other the girl was bria um Vinate, i think right she was kind okay. of an instagram personality i think is that what she, she was cast off instagram i'm pretty sure wow okay i mean the thing that uh really hit me so hard was how the movie walks this really it's like this really fine line between the kids feeling like this is just the best summer yeah. like they are free and there's something you can, at, at the same time, you can live vicariously through how they're feeling about their life. Mm-hmm. And then also have this adult perspective where you're looking at the situation and going, this is really fragile. Bad things might happen at any minute. Like you're worried. And at the same time, 
you can become this child who is just not going to have a care in, a, in the world about the fact that they have no supervision. They're just setting houses on fire. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, it really... I mean, for me, I don't know now, it just really reminds me a lot of my own childhood. Mm -hmm. Like, I grew up in um, in Morinville in a small town, right? And so it's just, we didn't have cell phones. Our parents didn't know where we were. We were just yeah. off, like, there was an auction mart um, across the field from where I lived. And we just would go climbing around in it. And it was probably dangerous and full of things yeah. that could hurt us. And, like, no one knew we were there. Yeah. And then it was just like, yeah, that was a, the totally normal thing for us to go do. Yeah, we used um, to do the same things with, like, abandoned houses. Oh, we, yeah. yeah. You know, the, 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 the worse, the more likely you were to get tetanus, the better it was <laughs> to go and play in. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, there is a lot of that in the film as well. And I think that that's a nice sort of duality that it has you are kind of like enjoying this very childlike fantastic I mean it takes place near Disneyland as well so yeah. there's that whole sequence at the end which is just like breathtaking mm -hmm. but at the same time you're thinking wow this, this is wildly irresponsible yeah. and this mother has no idea where these children are yeah <laughs> so I feel like the the color palette they chose for that really kind of lends to that is it's it's very kind of pastel yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah. muted in ways it's just like kind of nostalgic well, and even whimsical and it's just like you're like, yeah, this is really, it, it feels not childish, but like it really feels like you're kind of following really the whole perspective of these kids in on different levels. And yeah. Like for me, I don't know, cinematography colors are like really one of the first things I feel like I connect to in films. I know Definitely. you guys are talking about like performances, but yeah. for me, it's, it's like both... Florida Project and Moonlight it's really these these color tones and totally. these moods that they set that I really connect to no absolutely yeah. that's one of, uh, one of the things that, you know I was talking about the aesthetics of, of something like uh, In Fabric on the last podcast and The Lighthouse as well and that's something that binds all three of those films that we've talked about so Florida Project Tangerine as well yeah. has this sort of very bleached kind of um, you know hyper real uh, feel to it and, and you know given that the cinematography is all done on, on three iPhones as well it's just mm -hmm. really impressive but Moonlight and if Beale Street could talk, oh, yeah. uh, the follow-up as well was a different kind of tone, but much warmer. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess Moonlight and Florida Project both set in Florida. Yeah. So perhaps there's a sort of there's a link there as well. So there's a lot to be said for the uh, the aesthetics of cinema. I think, and that's if that's the, th the first thing that draws you in. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Well, too. and you know, even the the first song, like the opening credits, has celebrate the song celebrate yeah. good times. Come on, like it just it really sets you up to interpret this scenario from mm -hmm. this almost like blissfully mm -hmm. childish kind of and actually yeah there's uh, that was uh, they did the same thing in tangerine it starts off with waltz in toyland right that's the first track over the opening credits and it's sort of innocent and naive at the same time it's beautiful yeah barry jenkins 2016 film moonlight is based on terrell alvin mccraney's unpublished semi-autobiographical play in moonlight black eyes look blue and features outstanding performances from Travanti rhodes andre holland janelle Monet, ashton sanders gerald jerome naomi harris and mahershala ali the film presents three stages in the life of its central character Chiron as a young child, an adolescent and early adulthood as he navigates the difficulties he faces with his sexuality and identity. It was a universally acclaimed film winning a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture and was also the first film with an all-black cast to win an Oscar as well as the first LGBTQ related film to do so. Mahershala Ali was also the first Muslim to win an acting Oscar. While Moonlight is thoroughly deserving of its many accolades, it is first and foremost an exceptional piece of cinema in every possible way which is a sound endorsement on my end. As I mentioned I saw it a number of times and I'm still more than happy to watch it again. It has just the right amount of life affirming magic that is all too rare these days so come and bathe in the beautiful moonlight on Friday the 3rd of January at 6.45. As we also mentioned, Sean Baker's excellent 2017 film The Florida Project is another of our decade of film series for January. I'm sure you already got the sense that it was one of our favourites here at Close Up, but just for clarity, the film follows a six-year-old girl living with her rebellious single mother in a motel in Kissimmee in Florida as they struggle with poverty and pending homelessness. The title of the film actually also refers to this in the sense that the project is to stay safe and fed and it was also the original name of the closely situated theme park Disney World which plays a starkly contrasting role in the film as an opposition to the squalor of its central characters. For much of the cast this was their first appearance in a film which really helps to shed the filter between the viewer and the lives of Baker's characters. In this sense, the Florida Project bears a striking similarity to Baker's Tangerine from 2017, in which neither of the two leads had any major acting experience. 
We've talked before about the fact that Tangerine was shot on three iPhone 5Ss, and while the majority of the Florida project was shot on 35mm film, Baker does once again revert to using the same type of device, although slightly upgraded to a 6S, in one of the film's key final scenes. The footage was shot in secrecy without Disney's knowledge, and with a very limited crew so as not to draw attention. It really is a wonderful testament to Baker's skill as a craftsman to be able to blend two very distinct cinematographic disciplines so effectively, and remain completely in keeping with the tone of the film that also relies so heavily on our engagement the characters played by people that have never acted before. In a very different way, I think he's captured the same beauty and truth that I find in a lot of Harmony Kareen's work, so if you weren't able to see the Florida Project during its initial run, then I strongly urge you to come and witness the emergence of a truly unique voice in cinema. If you did see it, then come and see it again on Saturday, January 4th, because as with Moonlight, there's something new to be found in these incredible works of art with each viewing. Also, uh, uh, another... We've got the padding too, which is it is actually very good. And I I know someone who works at the Alberta ratings board here. Okay. She sees seven hundred movies a year. This Paddington Lindsay. two no um Aaron, Aaron. Fraser. Oh oh the, Paddington two yeah. was her favorite movie of wow. that year. What, and possibly what? of the past decade. I didn't see it. What is it about Paddington 2 what has she told you about it that's, I think maybe I just I'm, I'm able to identify with you know the kind of naivety of children in films like uh, The Florida Project right and oh he hates kids he does but, hate kids but, movies but when he does, he's very dismissive of kids but when movies. they're children so I have a very hard time taking them seriously I don't know why that is it's actually you know how Wes Anderson's aesthetic has kind of gotten more and more almost a parody of itself and it's gotten like too heightened yeah it's, yeah. it's kind yeah. of like Paddington 2 is a more suitable space for the, like it's really definitely the both Paddington movies, but especially Paddington Two is really riffing on that style. Okay, like the the color um, palette, the symmetrical um, staging of everything. Yeah, but it I think it really works for this kind of storybook environment. It's it's funny the way that people interact with Paddington, where they kind of. It's just kind of t- taken for granted that he is this talking bear. Like no one, it's vaguely like people treat him in like racist ways. Like okay. they, there are people who don't like that there's a bear living on the block. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not that that it's weird or anything. It's just that well, we don't have bears around here. You know what? I'm not sure how I would feel about that. Either. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I. Uh, I might, I might actually watch. So I don't know. Like I don't know why, for what, whatever reason, it's really just won the hearts of critics everywhere. But you know, it, it's yeah, it's, it just it's it seems like the kind of thing that if you, it might like soften a cynical heart. That's that's what it's all about. Okay. Yeah. Then maybe I'm the, I'm the target audience for a film like that. That's right. Okay. One of the nice things about showing Paddington or well, Paddington films is that I get to show, uh, being a projectionist, I get to screen original uh, episodes of Paddington Bear before the film oh that's is that is cool fun. so you um, do have some nostalgia for that I'm pushing it on other people yes alright yeah. alright This episode of Close Up is brought to you by Taproot Edmonton, your source for curiosity-driven coverage of our city, cultivated by the community. Taproot publishes a weekly arts roundup, gathering up what's happening locally in theatre, dance, division arts, literary arts and more. It's curated by Fonda Mithrush, a veteran of Edmonton's art scene and co-host of I Don't Get It, a fellow member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Subscribe to the Arts Roundup for free at taprootedmonton.ca. Another one of our picks is Force Majeure, which is directed by Ruben Ostland, uh, who also made The Square, which was a, a big hit. I was not sure how I felt about it. I really liked the kinds of things it was trying to do. And then some of the execution just was not working for me at all. Like there are great scenes within it. And then there are other things that kind of... Maybe that's more accurate in terms of how... Uh, I actually because I haven't watched it I haven't rewatched it much, yeah which is un- if I really really like it for I'll just I'll watch it repeatedly and I haven't done that with the square but yeah maybe I enjoyed talking about the things that it does rather than the experience of actually sitting through it again yeah like some of the things were just <laughs> slight too heightened or mm-hmm. something um, it tonally sometimes it felt very grounded in reality and other yeah. times it felt very over the top 
and there's just like a random chimpanzee in the movie for no <laughs> seemingly no reason. There's just like it's a, it's quite an absurd thing, but we aren't. That's not. That's not. We're we we showing because it's anyway. It's, it's Ruben Ostlander who also made uh, Force Majeure, which is his uh, earlier feature from uh, 2014, uh, which follows the marital tension resulting from an avalanche during which the husband prioritizes his own escape over the safety of his family. Yeah. It's a funny film. Should point that out as well. Right. But it's also very it's a it's a comedy drama. Yeah, like I think yeah. that this director is kind of doing there's kind of satirical but somewhat serious reflections on contemporary society. Yeah. So the square was really about the art world and about public discourse and what was <laughs> yeah. you know th- things being offensive and stuff like that and um, I haven't seen Force Majeure I'm really interested to see it um, so it's um, I think that was what I enjoyed about the square she was was I, I've met people like that Ruben Austin's Force Majeure from 2014 was actually inspired in part by his feeling that certain viral videos of captured real life events and emotions that were then uploaded to YouTube were indicative of the ways in which people truly react to the circumstances around them. Ostland had also formerly produced ski films and wanted to use his acquired knowledge and experience of the subject to create a film that was also concerned with existential crisis. In early 2020, we'll also be seeing a remake of the film entitled Downhill, directed by actor, voice actor, comedian and screenwriter Nat Faxon and Jim Rash, a.k.a. Dean Craig Pelton from Community. The screenplay was written by Jesse Armstrong, whose impressive film writing credits include In the Loop, Four Lions, and The Day Shall Come, as well as some excellent TV work in The Thick of It, Veep, and Black Mirror. The film also stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Will Ferrell, Miranda Otto, and Zach Woods, so as much as I'm sure a remake wasn't exactly necessary, it certainly sounds intriguing. At this point, I have no idea if Downhill is on the metro horizon, but keep your eyes open in any case. Force Majeure plays on Sunday the 5th at 3.30 as another of our films of the decade. Another one of my f- uh, favourite films of, of definitely of the last 10 years, maybe of all time, was uh, The Act of Killing, um, directed by yep. Joshua Oppenheimer, who made a follow-up, The, the Look, Look, of, Look of Silence. Uh, so The Act of Killing, that was a... a we sh- I remember I was working in London at the time that that was released, and it was one of the films that we... we it just was... It stayed in the cinema for months and months and months. It was just a breathtaking film. I feel like it had a profound impact on me when I saw it. Yeah. Because, so the story, it's a documentary mm-hmm. about the... Indonesian yes. mass killings of 1965. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. These killings were part of instating the current government. Mm-hmm. And they had hired these gangsters to do the killings in really very, like, <laughs> grassroots kind of ways. It's, like, I guess the only way I know how to put it. And and they've kind of been um, hailed as heroes in the country since. The film is a, is a sort of a series of reenactments yes. of the uh, methods of torture that were performed on vast numbers of people, and they seem quite happy to just relive it in a very comical way. In some sense. Yeah, so the, the these these guys who performed these killings were big cinema fans. They, re- they were really mad yeah. about the previous government because there was they, they had kind of blocked American films from screening there. And so the, the premise of this documentary is getting them to reenact their killings in the style of their favorite kinds of movies. Yeah. So a musical or a gangster movie. And they're also getting the descendants of the victims to act out, be, t- be the victims. And it's so, so fascinating to watch because the these descendants of victims have basically had to um, deny any outward feelings of trauma with, uh, in this government. But then they get to act out their trauma on camera. Yeah. And at the same time, when these killers are acting out their crimes, you do see them kind of grow throughout the movie, whereas these, they've kind of blocked the darkness. <laughs> they can talk about it in this very detached way, but when they reenact it and yeah. they see these people acting out as victims they seem to be confronting the darkness of what they've actually done. And so it just made me think about how we bury certain things in trauma and and the idea of acting, of performance, of art as a way to bring some of these things to the surface. I just have never seen anything like it. No, that's a a, a nice observation. 
It may only be 2020, but Joshua Oppenheimer's utterly arresting film, The Act of Killing, is sure to be regarded as one of the films of the century. It really is an outstanding and profound rumination on the often terrible nature of humanity, confronting the horrors of a particularly brutal period in Indonesia's complicated past. It's important to note that the film does not set out to offer a plotted history through the events of the killings of 1965 and 66, but rather it directly asks participants of those events to confront the impact of having taken part in one of the most merciless acts of genocide in the last century. In this way, the film is reminiscent of Claude Landsman's 1985 566-minute documentary Shoah, which uses only interviews with survivors, witnesses and perpetrators of the Holocaust to construct a devastatingly human portrait of the act of genocide. No archive footage is used, so the film does not contain any of the images we expect to see in a film about the Holocaust. This is what sets both films apart from other documentaries. They are not constructed in a way that dictates a particular opinion to the viewer. Instead, we are asked to formulate our own interpretations based on the memories and emotional responses of the people that were present at the time of the events. It's certainly not a comfortable experience, but definitely an essential one. So come and see The Act of Killing on Monday the 6th at 9.30. well-endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink, produced by Lisa Pruden, explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how these endowments intersect with the community. On the latest episode, Dana Hyman, Executive Director of Kids Sport Edmonton, tells us about why access to sport is so important for kids and how their group uses fundraising and community partnerships to make sure all kids can play. Subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Back with me once again is Mr. G.H. Luma, who is the curator of Seven Deadly Sins, which is now on its, uh, its third screening. The next one, though, is one of my absolute favorites of all time. This is uh, With Nail and I, and I believe this is Sloth. Yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. So this is uh, from uh, 1987. Directed by Bruce Robinson, this is his directorial debut. He only made a few films in his career, and he had a sort of troubled life as well, and this is a semi-autobiographical film. What made you go for this one? Because this is an unusual pick for anywhere in North America, even though it is a, a sort of a cult well, favourite. I think the reason why is that it's really kind of fallen out of the public consciousness, and I think there's a whole generation of individuals who have never really experienced the film, and it's a great film to experience in a theatre, with a bunch of people because not only is it really really funny it's also there are very few movies where afterwards you come out of a movie theater and you just kind of want to walk around for about a half hour and just take everything all in and yeah. that's pretty rare it's a film it has a very powerful aesthetic i'd say i think a lot of people still don't quite believe that it was made in 87 because it, it portrays the world of so it takes place at the end of the 60s and that's very much what the film is about is this decline of uh, society in England the end of an era and it's about the, the relationship between these two out of work actors who are trying to you know sort of struggle through life and it's interesting that you chose uh, uh, chose it for sloth because it kind of reminds me of the uh, there's a, a line early on in the film train spotting in Danny Boyle's train spotting where uh, Renton is describing the life of an addict and he says that people think it's a soft option, but it's actually hard work to be that lazy. And I think these two are, are a fine example of how much work goes into avoiding doing any work. Um, they've mastered it uh, down to a T, and they kind of like leech off this rich uncle, Uncle Monty, and manage to uh, negotiate a, a weekend getaway, or a, yeah, I suppose it's a weekend getaway, a, a country house in Penrith owned by the uncle, and uh, hilarious consequences ensue as they uh, pretend not to be from London, but uh, are incapable of being anything other than that. It's a film that resonated with me a lot when I was younger because I grew up in Devon, which is very green and, and uh, there's lots of moorland. That's the sort of landscape that you see in this film. Spending you know, afternoons and evenings in, in dank pubs was, uh, was just a thing that we did. And that's pretty much what the film feels like. It feels like a hangover. Um, you know, <laughs> another interesting true. one as well, because Richard E. Grant was, is playing a, an alcoholic, uh, and he was, of course, teetotal uh, when the film was made. So he never had a drink in his life. Yeah, and I, I asked, but to that point, I read that um, because of that, Bruce Robinson forced him to yeah. drink one time, and he got so violently ill because of that. Yeah. yeah, Just, so to, just to experience what it was. Credit to uh, Mr. Uh, Richard E. Grant for really committing to the role. It's also a really great film about dissipation. 
and that's really hard to present, as you mentioned earlier, on the big screen. It's presented at a time in one's life where one is able to do that, and especially at that time.、Mm. The consequences of living a dissipated life, I don't think, are as、uh, pronounced as they are now. It, it's very hard to live that type of lifestyle circa 2020 because we live in such a completely different world from when that world took place. But there is the beauty of the artistic soul and the beauty of the artistic life.、Mm-hmm. Living that lifestyle, I think, is so vividly portrayed in this film. It's more about not the external journey through life; it's more about the internal journey through life. And I think that's what makes the ending so just profound and so incredibly moving. I'd also like to stress that it is uproariously funny, funny film. Yeah, it is. It, it yeah, really is, and it, in in very surprising ways,、uh, a lot of the humor comes from the really rich characterizations,、uh, as opposed to、um, kind of a gag orientated. It, it's it、yeah. accumulates in a really, really、uh, organic way, which is pretty rare to find in movies now. It's interesting. It was nearly shut down、um, because of its、uh, lack of obvious. Humor, obvious jokes, and while it is, if you, I mean, especially if you're from Britain, this is a, you know, it's not just a cult classic. This is one of the finest British films ever made. But I think it's because these characterizations are so personal and so accurate that it almost, it doesn't. I wouldn't say it overshadows. So it's not a, not a criticism or, or in any kind of negative way. It doesn't overshadow the the kind of inherent comedy of the situation.、Um, but there's a lot of reality. To it, which is not necessarily always present in a comedy、uh, film, which uses you know comedy to sort of deflect the reality of the drama of certain situations, the real tragedy,、um, and I think it has both those things. And th- there's also, and this is really hard to, to do, I think, in films,、um, the movement of life, and it really shows the movement of life in a really wonderful way、mm. um, when Danny comes to their flat. Or when they're out walking in the countryside, and it's just them walking.、Mm-hmm. It's moments like that which are, for most people, pretty insignificant moments. But as one goes through life,、uh, usually those are the moments that people remember, and that's really hard to do in the film. As we said, the film is is、uh, semi-autobiographical. Bruce Robinson wrote it based on about four or five years of his life, and has condensed it into two weeks. So, there's of those kind of very grand experiences to have condensed it into a film which still contains these kind of moments of silence and peace. It's a very dexterous way of writing, I think. It's also, I think, a real loving tribute to his friend、yes. who played the Richard E. Grant character. Yeah, Vivian、yeah. McCarroll, and and of course Uncle Monty is also based on、uh, Franco <laughs> Zeffirelli, who's、uh, apparently made some advances、yeah. toward Bruce Robinson in his early acting career. So yeah, he does. He, dra- he draws quite heavily on people from his own life. It's helped a lot by the fact that you have these incredible actors at the、oh, centre、yeah. of it. When people see the film for the first time, I think, without giving anything away, the ending. Surprises them because、mm-hmm. it it forces you to look at the film in a completely different way. Yeah, at the end, it's not in any way a cheap summation of what's been happening in the film to kind of have a final gag. It it has meaning. It, it, it lingers with you, and it makes the viewer reconsider the Richard E. Grant character. Yeah, and also reconsider what is success. There's, I guess, an interesting deduction of what the difference between poverty and affluence really is. Like, who really ends up? I mean, Uncle Monty is a great character in the film, but he's obviously this this sort of、uh, aging, rich, upper class remnant of a previous era. But he lives a life of tragedy. He lives his life of conflict, where he's never、uh, able to fully realise his true desires. A, a funny tragedy too, yeah, I'd like yeah, to say, because he's a very, very funny character. He's an amazing character. <laughs> So I was going to say as well, actually, that an interesting one for greed, even though I know that that has passed, would have been Bruce Robinson's next one. 
which how was to a, how to get ahead in advertising. advertising. Another really, really outstanding performance from Richard E. Grant. Totally eccentric, but in a completely different way. And and another film that's completely fallen off the radar. Uh, I think Bruce Robinson has had a somewhat difficult career because he really was an artist working within the commerciality of the film business. I, I knew people who worked on his film that he did in Vancouver, Jennifer 8. Yeah. And they spoke of how he was out of sorts mm-hmm. to a large sense because the the machine and the commerciality of what movie making is here in North America was completely at odds to his artistic sensibility and who he was yeah. as an individual and what and how his working methods are. If you're a creative individual working within that system, you can be beaten down by the system. And, yeah. And I think absolutely. to a degree... Bruce Robinson was beaten down by the system. Uh, 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 another tremendous English filmmaker, uh, Scottish, I believe, Bill Forsythe, was beaten down by the system as well too. And he hasn't made a film, I think, since about nineteen, uh, I think nineteen ninety six or nineteen ninety seven. This really remarkable Robin Williams film called Being Human, okay. which just got vilified and yeah. kind of ended his career, unfortunately. Also, too, if yeah. if if whoever is listening to this, if you're uh, a performer or an actor or uh, an artist, I highly recommend you go see this film uh, because it's so inspirational to the artistic process. It might even teach you to deal with disappointment because it might not happen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fantastic film. Please come and see it. It's, I guess, I said it was one of my probably one of my top 20 of all time it's a film i've seen probably over 30 or 40 times so thanks for thanks for showing this one. Oh well thank you very much for having me well i've got you here what's going to be the next one i don't have you, have you any ideas we're not sure yet because we're trying to get the rights oh okay <laughs> so, okay so it'll be it, it will be a surprise it will be something that's rarely if ever screened in edmonton perfect and it will be about lust my favorite sin. <laughs> Mr. Limmer, thank you very much for coming in. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Of course. We'll have you next time. Of <laughs> uh, the same week, on the 8th, we've got Stories We Tell at uh, 2 o'clock, which is part of our Welcome Wednesdays uh, screenings, and it's Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's actually part of this decade in review. I mean, I definitely think it's one of the the better Canadian films of the last decade. Sarah Polly, you know, she's kind of a Canadian icon yeah. from for people mm-hmm. of my generation. And it's a very personal story of her mother who has passed away and her relationship with her father. And it feels somewhat, you know, related to the act of killing in that it's a bit performative. Mm-hmm. Like she gets her father to be the narrator and it's a bit meta you kind of see her directing him. It plays with your expectations based on what it chooses to show you. So it, it in the end, it kind of is, it's messing with you a little bit. Uh, Sarah Polly, I remember, the reason I know who she is is because I watched Go. Yeah. She I seemed like one? she was going yeah. to be, and break out onto like yeah. the American, and then she was too cool for that. Like, she, she was yeah, just she like, was, I'm, no, I'm not really interested in. Well, she's done some she's amazing things. Maybe. Sarah Polly was a child star on CBC for when I was a kid, oh. Road to Avonlea. It's like a, it was a spin-off of the Anne of Green Gables world. Okay. And I was a huge Anne of Green Gables fan, so. I love Anne of Green yeah. Gables. <laughs> I did, went to PEI and did like the whole. I haven't. I would like to. There's a lot of tourist attractions yeah. related to Anne of Green It's like the whole island is basically one big <laughs> Anne of Green Gables theme park. That, that's as, you know, a 12-year-old, that was my experience of it anyway. Uh, okay, so Monday, the 13th, is, uh, so we talked about this um, a few months ago, we did a customer appreciation night, so we showed two films, three. So last year we had Sorry to Bother You, I remember. And, and Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, won't You Be My yeah. yeah, okay. But this year it's another belter. We've got Booksmart at seven, and then uh, Midsummer, the director's cut again, which I'm, I'm glad actually we're showing that again, because I actually prefer the director's cut, I think. I've seen them both. You've seen them both, yeah? Yeah. I saw Booksmart as well, actually. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really funny, too. Yeah. I, I was, I was, went into it wondering, do we need another, like, teen sex comedy? There's been so many. Yes. But I really felt like it brought new things to the table, and just, just new, just a new energy. It did. Uh, so, yeah, directed by Olivia Wilde. Which is an, uh, well one thing that kind of sets it apart. Most of the f- the films you speak of are directed by 
uh, childlike men. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a really, it's actually quite a funny film. I don't usually go for films like that. Yeah. You know, I'm not really, I'm, I don't have very limited patience for, uh, um, you know, things like, what, who's that guy who just made about a million of them? Um, Apatow. Oh, Judd Apatow. I, I like some of his movies. I, I think I did. Yeah. And then it's just, it's just grown kind of very... It's stale. It's a little stale, bit stale. Yeah. And that, and this one doesn't feel stale. No. And also I would say it's the type of movie to go see in a, in a theater because, you know, just like the, it's infectious when you're sitting in a room for a peop, full of people and everyone's laughing together. Yeah. And also it has a really banging soundtrack. <laughs> like it's really, really good. It's yeah. Dan the Automator. Uh, did all the music for it. The, pe- the girls in it are amazing. So it's Caitlin Diva and Beanie Feldstein are the two main kids at the centre of it. And they're kind of like their comedy timing and... Um, rapport. Uh, rapport. I'm having trouble with words today. You guys know that Beanie is Johnny Hill's sister? I did yeah. not know that. I did know that. Yeah. So yes, Booksmart, that's going to be at 7 o'clock. It's free. You should come and see it. And uh, at 9.15, also free, Midsummer the Director's Cut. And uh, I... I think it's a bit too soon to say I might even have put Midsummer in my top 20 of the last decade. Florence Pugh is amazing in it, actually. She's mm-hmm. really, really, really fantastic. We had uh, slightly different feelings towards it. Um, <laughs> I, d- I, I like it. Yeah. With both these films, with both Hereditary and Midsummer, I um, feel like they're, in some ways, they're drawing from better films, and that's a frustrating thing, because I can't help but compare them to the things they clearly are inspired by. Mm -hmm. But I also think they're doing interesting things, and so I, I have very ambivalent feelings about both those films. Hereditary ultimately was more interesting to me because I think of personal reasons. Yeah. Like the the horror of this mother going through this traumatic experience where I don't want to give it away, but it's taking what is ultimately one of the most horrific things a real parent could imagine and then putting it into the supernatural context. Yes. Which was very interesting to me. Midsummer, I think if you have been in if you have had a relatable relationship experience to what's happening in that movie, then that movie is going to speak to you very directly. I think that's uh, that's an excellent point. And I think that is basically the difference between how you and I kind of uh, yeah. enjoyed it. I mean, I definitely think people should check out Ari Aster's films just because they, I feel like they just approach mood and stuff in a very different way than a lot of horror. Like so many horror movies have just become really predictable in how they, absolutely how they scare you. Yeah. And, he is unsettle- unsettling in a whole new way. As part of a recurring theme of programming at Metro, we like to take the opportunity whenever possible to showcase the work of some of the leading figures in independent and world cinema. In recent months, we've seen work from directors such as Louis Bunuel, Pier Paolo Pasolini, Joel Petroikas and Martin Scorsese. And in January, we continue with a spotlight on Agnes Varda, whose final film, Varda by Agnes, opens on Friday 17th. We've started with you know, wanting to do a, a bit more of an Agnes Varda retrospective. Now, with the new film, Agnes Varda's last film being released posthumously mm-hmm. it was a great opportunity for us to kind of revisit a couple of other of her films I mean Agnes Varda died in 2019 mm-hmm. it's almost like she's been making her last film every two years for the last decade like she's just she's been I think realistic about the fact that she's she was quite old and I remember uh, the place the the beaches of Agnes that was one where she I think was looking back on her whole life's work and and this is what her a, a lot of her documentaries do is kind of take her own life experience and mm. tie together different elements t- to bring together like certain themes. Uh, Beaches of Agnes was, was 2008 so that was right, a decade okay. before exactly. Faces Places which is a long time yeah. to have pondered making your next last film (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah you you did a course yeah yeah on Agnes Varda uh yeah it was it was three female filmmakers so uh Agnes Varda was one of them Mm -hmm. so uh Cleo from five to seven is kind of considered an essential French new wave film I think the first time I saw it I maybe wrote it off a little bit because the character it's about a character who's very Mm self-involved kind of learning to be less so and it's a little bit off-putting at first to watch her but this last time I watched it I I was very just kind of blown away with how the camera work um, reflects what is happening to this character psychologically and the use of mirrors in the film and Varda does this a lot I think but 
the just the way even mirrors are incorporated where there's tons of mirrors and somehow the cameras are never in the mirrors and it's just beautiful and how this her kind of identity kind of gets fragmented through the mirrors. She's uh, so Agnes Varda is a member of part of the French New Wave, but the, the, left, left, bank. the left bank. So mm-hmm. that would be Chris Marker, who's one of my absolute favorite filmmakers, Alan Rene, Alan Rob Grier. Alan Rob Grier wrote actually one of my favorite films, which was directed by Alan Rene, which is last year, uh, or Lani Dunier, Marion Bad. Um, and what is the other film we're showing? Uh, so the other one is The Gleaners and I, which is about potatoes. Okay. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I know. I'm an intimate. Uh, this is from IMDb, an intimate, picturesque inquiry into French style life as lived by the country's poor and its provident, as well as by the film's own director. Aesthetic, political, and moral point of departure for Varda are gleaners, those individuals who pick at already reaped fields for the odd potato, the leftover turnip. So I would say the thing that stood out to me watching Varda's films is the way that she's really interested in people mm-hmm. and in connections between people. Um, so even when she's like theoretically making a documentary about herself, she keeps actually turning the story on to other people. There's mm-hmm. a, in, in the beaches of Agnes, there's this early moment where she goes to her childhood home to, with the intent to kind of walk around it and talk about her memories there. And then she meets the guy who lives there and she just ends up talking to him about his train collection like his toy train collection and just like that's ultimately more interesting to her than her you know going about talking about her own life and and just the way that these connections kind of feel genuine that everywhere she goes these networks of people kind of expand so yeah it's uh it's a very interesting way of making films and that kind of journey that you uh you go with her as well she's sort of uh you know reliving her past and talking about it very kind of uh, candidly is also something you can find in things like the act of killing again right. where you've got this kind of it's people really reliving their own narrative through memory mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to yeah like i said before you know a thing that's kind of pieced together for you yeah i really like that and she's uh, yeah she's incredible so we show we got uh, clear from five to seven which is uh, an early one i think a second feature from uh, 1962 and then the gleaners and i is from 2000 and then vada by agnes is from 2019 so there's a good spread yeah. I think my favorite two Varda films that I've seen are probably Vagabond which is like one of my favorite movies of all time okay and uh, Le Bonheur which is such a frustrating movie the first time I saw it I was I didn't know if I was supposed to be as angry as I was at the end so I didn't know if I liked it and okay. then the second time I saw it I was pretty sure that this is exactly how Agnes Varda wanted me to feel at the end. So um, ultimately, yeah. I think it's pretty great. Your description of it, though, reminds me of the how I felt after I saw Mother. <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, initially, I, I just I hated that I've been made to sit through it. Yeah. But I couldn't shake the feeling of it. Right. It I, left an impression. I don't think I'm going to go as far as to say I like it. <laughs> but it's a film I'm happy to discuss <laughs> yes you have feelings about it i have feelings about that's it important. that's a good thing you should have feelings feelings are good mm. close up is a proud member of the alberta podcast network which hosts a wonderful range of homegrown content from film pop culture and the arts to sports education and politics you can find podcasts of all shapes and sizes at albertapodcastnetwork.com Saturday 25th though the last unicorn Talisha yeah <laughs> now you I I do not have any uh, you know fond memories of the last unicorn but I do know several people that do mm-hmm. it is I don't know it's one of my favorite movies from child probably my favorite movie from childhood okay. Mia Farrow is a unicorn in this movie right yeah yes so I remember when I owned a video store, the last Unicorn DVD was one of the most treasured DVDs in the store. People would constantly discover it and you would hear their very excited reaction to the fact that we had it and that they could take it home and rent it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had one person rent it and thought it was the worst movie they had ever <laughs> seen. And they came in and they were like, you should not have this in the store. And I was like, well, I hate to tell you this, but that is probably one of the most popular movies we have here. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's I, it's tonal it's like I think it's just very not contemporary 
like the energy just the tone of it and the energy of it is just so is it 70s it's, um uh, i've only seen it one time projected onto the side of a garage mm-hmm. for someone's birthday who's favorite film is Last Unicorn. But, you know, as far as real family cinema films go, I think it's a, a nice a nice pick. Yeah, I kind of wish we did more, like, old Yeah, like movies. when we showed, it was great when we showed Dark Crystal yeah, uh, or kinda, a little while ago. Well, those are kind of the ones where it's like, they're borderline. Some parents are like, ooh, this is too scary right. for my children. And, like, I know The Last Unicorn, it's like, there are a couple scenes where it is right on that edge of, like, you know, for younger kids, it mm. is frightening and... Yeah, uh, the scene with the tree is just kind of weird, <laughs> but you know. You have to come and see it to, to know what we're talking about. The scene about. with the tree. The scene with the tree. What, yeah. what could it be? You'll know it when you see it. No yeah. <laughs> Hard to miss. Yeah. Uh, the animation, though, in this film is just—it's really good. And, okay. Like I don't know, I feel like it's still even today. Like it, it's a very unique or distinct mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. I still think that of Akira though when I watch mm-hmm. that. I still think that the animation it holds up. Uh, over time, is what? that a fan? Is that a real? That is I no, it's not. But I'm just talking about animation right. from the 80s. It's from uh, like I 88. have trivia about the animation from this. Oh, do you? Yeah. So it's the same people that did um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Oh, oh okay. Wow. They were Topcraft Studio, and I think they went bankrupt. And, and it was Miyazaki. So yeah, so Topcraft was bought out, and eventually turned into Studio Ghibli but yeah it was a lot of the same animators from Ghibli that were at this place that they did The Last Unicorn The Hobbit right uh, animation and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind those are like the three I remember mm-hmm. um, yeah. and on that note The Hobbit was like a very traumatizing movie to watch as like a seven year old and I shouldn't have done it was that uh, <laughs> like Ralph Bachi or is that, was that The Hobbit or was that Lord of the Rings I can't remember is it, are, there, are there two I different think ones the that was with the, with the rotoscope wraiths wasn't it oh um, it's weird. It's yeah. really unsettling to look at. I actually met uh, the the movie's based on a novel by Peter S. Beagle, and I met him at um, the San Diego Comic Con back in 2011. Okay. Cool. He's really nice to talk to. Yeah. And he really appreciates when people come to talk to him about his work and like what it means to them. So there's two films that I think have been programmed um, because of the uh, the similarity of nature, but the documentary Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, which is a new film, um, which, uh, for, as far as I can tell, just it you know talks to a lot of uh, filmmakers and sound editors and sound designers and technicians of the film industry and people like David Lynch and Steven Spielberg, who are kind of like synonymous with uh, the development of, of sound in cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that could be interesting if that's your thing. But after that is probably my favourite film, Eraserhead. Uh, 11 o'clock is going to be late screening. And this was my, it was my staff pick, uh, but it was a film that I introduced uh, when we showed it last We did year. like a little bit of a Lynch That's right, because we, we showed a film, The Art of... Uh, there was a documentary about his, uh, his work as a painter. Yeah, and it was also kind of like right on the heels of the Twin Peaks, The Return. So. And you introduced uh, Firewalk with me, didn't you? I did, yeah. yeah. That, that was, was very close to my heart. Yeah. That was almost three years ago. Yeah. Wow, that wasn't last year at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, 2017, April. Yeah. Okay. This is absolute truth. I that Eraserhead was the first movie that made me think about sound design in film. Me too. Like, w- w- like you just are watching it and it's so subtle and also not subtle at yeah. the same time. Like, it's it's yeah. It's just this crazy soundscape the whole time. And we said this last time as well, but it was uh, it, We Are Not The Only Two. It was a film that was a huge influence on uh, Peter Strickland. Uh, oh, yeah. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, right. he'd said that uh, his, his idea of what cinema sound was was completely different after he saw that film. And that, I think, has uh, informed the way that he makes films, which is, you know, you, you get a similar sense of his appreciation of the kind of the art of cinema sound yeah. from his films. And that all, for me, that all stems from... Um, my understanding of it all stems from uh, uh, Eraserhead. I've seen it at the Metro at least three or four times at this point. It really is a movie that's worth making the time to go see in the theater. If, if I mean, yeah, it's not going to be for everyone. No. But it's no. just, there's just so much atmosphere in that movie. And it's almost, there's something kind of comforting about it. No, there, yeah. really, there really is. I, I, I've, I, again, that was a film I did my dissertation on, so I'd probably have seen it. it, it 
I don't even know, definitely over 50 times mm-hmm. uh, because I've just studied it and just I've, you know watched it on, on repeat. But it's it's incredible. Everything about it, the artistry of it, the, it took five years to make. Everything is so kind of carefully sculpted because of that. As I mentioned, Eraserhead took roughly five years to finish, although perceptions of time appear to be a little hazy where the actual production is concerned. And it was largely shot in a virtually abandoned building owned by the American Film Institute known as The Stables. For around two to three years, David Lynch lived in the stables and occupied Henry's room while he was there. When he eventually ran out of money to make the film, the cast and crew continued free of charge, even bringing film stock they had purchased with their own money to the set so they could continue shooting. They worked day and night to ensure the film was completed before the stables were turned into an editing facility by the AFI. So from this you can get the sense that while it may aesthetically be a strange and dark film and perhaps even a little inaccessible to some, it was nothing short of a labour of love for everyone that worked far longer than they ever could have imagined when they initially embarked on what was supposed to be a student film. It's fair to say that it changed the lives of everyone involved and for my money, the landscape of cinema too. It found a home on the midnight movie circuit, eventually generating a huge cult following and ended up on some theatre marquees for something like four years. It's considered to be the last of the real midnight movies after which it became nigh on impossible to market and screen films in the same way. Along with its midnight movie peers El Topo, Night of the Living Dead, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Pink Flamingos and The Heart of They Come, Eraserhead was a key component in changing the way people viewed and critiqued what would previously have only ever existed on the fringes of cinema. It may be somewhat recognisable as an experimental surrealist art house film and it's certainly embedded within that canon of cinema owing to its initial journey into the vein of film theory and criticism, but it's also a deeply concise film, painstakingly sculpted into an audio-visual manifestation of the director's ideas and influences. Lynch is also an accomplished painter and photographer, and one of the most beautiful aspects of a Razorhead is his understanding of light and dark, or chiaroscuro to use its painterly term. There are what seem like areas of deep darkness throughout the film. This is a very direct invitation to peer into those areas, encouraging you to imagine what it is that's been obscured from you. Sometimes only the slightest indication of an object or figure is revealed, and this delicate attention to detail is testament to the exacting, fastidious nature of the way in which Lynch is communicating with us. It kind of amazes me that what people seem to remember with more frequency than anything else is the nondescript fetus. And the reason I find that odd is because there is so much occurring in the universe of a raised head that for me, it's really the beginning of Lynch establishing a dialogue with us, the viewer, and one that would carry on throughout almost his entire body of work. Eraserhead is such a dense and unique exercise in creativity and technique that I eventually ended up basing my entire thesis on one single scene from the film. Those of you that have seen it will know what I'm referring to if I say the lady in the radiator. Those of you that haven't, you will soon enough. To be slightly more specific than that, I focused on the sound design in this scene as an exemplar of the ways in which Lynch uses his artistic dexterity to engage us in an open discourse with the world he has created. It was the first time I'd experienced a piece of art that had attempted to document something beyond what is immediately visible and to dissect the complex arrangements of noise that clash and harmonise in an endless choir exchange. Just to give you a brief idea of the technical components involved in sculpting the soundscape of Razorhead, Lynch worked with sound designer Alan Splett in a small garage studio using two to three tape recorders and a console. They also had a couple of sound libraries and organic effects. The sounds are all natural, so no synthesizers, and the two would manipulate it all with a graphic equaliser, reverb, and a little dipper filter. They would vary the pitch but not the speed of what they had made, and otherwise were able to piece it all together according to their own creative design. It took several months to make and six months to a year to edit together. It is often cited as a precursor to a new genre of music, what we may commonly refer to now as dark ambient or ambient industrial, although elements of those can also be found in earlier works by musicians like Tangerine Dream, Popol Vuh and Throbbing Gristle. Where Eraserhead departs from common modes of sound design is that there is no definitive line between the temporal space of the film and anything that occurs outside of it. What we're hearing is the world that surrounds and flows through the images we are seeing, like a fractal study of sound inside a never-ending vortex of frequencies. This examination of both diegetic and non-diegetic sound is a prevalent theme in all of Lynch's work. Whether it's the rising wash of white noise that emanates from a television set, or the fractured tick of a broken light bulb, there is always a sense that the veil of reality that grounds us in the physical world is being broken through, even if only temporarily. All the same could be said for the visual element of the film, in fact very few films were able to so effectively blur those boundaries, I found that hearing Eraserhead had truly changed the way I would hear the world around me. While not necessarily to his detriment, Eraserhead is far and away Lynch's most direct exploration of these ideas, but he has continued to allude to a world beyond that which we physically engage with. It's often said of Eraserhead that it's a film to be experienced rather than watched, and this was certainly the case for me when I entered this unique world for the first time. While the film is definitely held together by at least a trace of formal narrative, what we're really seeing is an explosion of ideas and ruminations on the fabric and nature of existence. It's everything that lives beneath the veneer of reality, that we can't see or touch but is within us and all around us, like the incorporeal mechanics of life. 
I strongly urge you to come and see it on the big screen if you haven't, and you can do so on Saturday the 25th at 11pm. So that pretty much covers everything. I've been Owen, as I always am. Uh, thank you very much for coming, Talisha. Thanks. Thank you very much for coming, Heather. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.